0: It's a place where we'll learn about each other and ourselves, dive into important issues that affect us, discover all that we have in common, and make some memories. So pour yourself a glass of bread and get comfortable. Every night is ladies' night, and we are women. When I spoke with Angela Setti, I was left so incredibly inspired by her story of how she worked to overcome her childhood fears of being in the spotlight and eventually becoming her own child's advocate when her daughter was diagnosed with a rare form of epilepsy called ESIS, which doesn't allow a person to sleep. So Angela became her child's advocate and used her painful and challenging journey as a way to create change in the world. Through years of personal experience with her daughter and research of the brain, Angela works as a brain health empowerment coach, and she wrote a book called Opening Our Minds to Our Brain's Potential. Are we our children's teachers or are they ours? Which is a book about the transformational approach to life when we keep our minds open to the teachers that present themselves, especially our children. So during our conversation, Angela shares how her daughter's condition affected the rest of the family, Along with the empathy her children expressed for each other. None of which will surprise you because when you hear her story and how she felt and advocated for her daughter, you'll understand exactly where the empathy stems from. Listen in and be inspired.
1: Young Angela was extremely shy, painstakingly shy, uh, to the point that I would do anything I could not to look somebody in the eyes. I would look down when I was walking most of the time. I would um, not engage in conversation. I would try to avoid whatever I could that would cause some sort of engagement in conversation. And I lived quite a lot of my life like that early on. And it wasn't until I realized that it was doing me a big disservice and it closed me off from a lot of things. And I think the major turning point for me was when my grandfather actually had a stroke and he was unable to speak. And I realized through his struggling and what he was going through, what a beautiful way of expression through being able to talk to people and engage with people. And the only thing he could do is kind of use his hands and his body. So I really had to look at him in order to understand what he was communicating because he also had a hard time writing. That really shook me. And that made me think that I was really giving up something that. There was no sound reason for it other than I was afraid. I had a lot of fears and I had to overcome them. But watching him struggle really pushed me in a direction that said, you know what? My voice does matter. And just because I'm a female and just because I look a little different than than some people doesn't make my words any less important or impactful than anybody else. But I had to sort of teach myself that as I watched somebody struggle that really was unable to do that for himself. And I was really close with my grandparents. My parents were divorced when I was, I think probably about five years old, if I can remember correctly. So my grandparents paid, played kind of this surrogate parent role for us while my mom went to work and my dad did his thing. So that's why it was so impactful to see him like that at a young age. And I don't know if you recall any time if you had to get up in front of people and speak, I would have probably thought that was the worst thing that I could ever do was to actually get up in front of the classroom. And then they always made you do that. You know, when you're sitting in your, your seat, they used to do that, read out loud. I would... I would panic. My heart would beat so fast and I would shrink it. I would literally think to myself, if I got a little smaller, nobody would see me. If I shrunk down a little bit more in my seat, you know, those goofy desks, then nobody would see me, but somehow <laughs> I would always get picked on. And literally I would, I really thought people could hear my heartbeat. That's, that's how Loud, my heart was beating when I was doing those sorts of things. So that was the young
0: Angela, very, very nervous, very scared. Um, Yeah. Wow. So how did you get past that? How did you work through that fear? Well, part of it
1: was watching my grandfather, but then it just seemed that one event after the next had pushed me in a direction that said, you need to do this. You need to push past all of this because if you don't, other people will have problems, will not be able to function either. And I think that that's the biggest like turning point is seeing that when your voice can make a difference, when you can actually empower people to do different things, you think about it differently. You think about it in a way that makes you kind of say, I am doing not only myself a disservice, which we can kind of say that's okay. You know, a lot of people could say that that's okay. But when it's other people and you're compassionate for other people's pain, and I I am very compassionate for other people's pain, that's sort of what always drives me, always pushes me ahead and says, yes, I can do this and I I will find a way. And so one story after the next, you know, the the next thing that came in line was my father-in-law getting Parkinson's disease, which actually made me learn more about the brain. I learned about the brain at a really young age when my grandfather had a stroke. And it was like life was teaching me that if there's anything that you need to work on most, it is your brain and how to function at a higher level, no matter what your circumstances, For my grandfather, it was a stroke. Then for my father-in-law, it was Parkinson's disease. Then coming down the line as I'm growing up, it was me actually trying to say, I want to do all these wonderful things and trying to find ways that I could overcome fear, but in a way that I felt protected and safe. And that is like a whole story in itself that I learned to do for myself, but then I could train people to do that for themselves. Then what happened, my daughter ended up with a rare form of epilepsy and this form of epilepsy would not let her sleep at night. So she did not cycle. Most people go to sleep and you, you get about four cycles if you're if you're lucky. And four cycles is really what we should be having. In my daughter's case, she wouldn't even get one cycle before she would be woken up right in the middle of the night with a seizure and very scary for her. So what happened was it caused her heart rate and her biorhythms, biorhythms are your heart rate, your respiration rate, um, your muscle conductivity. And once that happens, once your biorhythms are escalated and your fear factor is kicked in, then it's even harder to fall back asleep. So she had that double-edged sword there that wouldn't allow her to sleep. So what I found is all the things that I learned along the way about fear, I needed to implement it for her in a way that she could understand at the age of eight, nine years old and implement it so she could get a little bit of rest, a little bit of sleep. And so in doing that, I understood the fear. And I feel like that that's such a big part is to actually be empathetic to somebody else, like what what they're going through, how they're feeling, feeling. And I could feel that because I had such a big fear. Had I not had that kind of fear I'm not sure I could understand what she was going through and even maybe take her through each technique and step to help her become calm, to become relaxed, to let go and say, even even if I have a seizure, I'm protected. I have somebody here, I have these things and I can still move forward. And I feel like that's what everybody needs no matter what they're going through in their life because circumstances, we can't always control. But what we can control is what's going on inside our body, what's going on with our heart rate, what's going on with, you know, maybe we're, our muscles are tense. We can control that if we can recognize that this is what our body's going through. And this is fear. And this is, I'm going to either fight or I'm going to flight. And of course, we can't run away from sleep. We all need it. <laughs> So I learned a lot and I had to be her advocate because uh, she was labeled when she was um, basically nine years old as communication impaired. Again, another like big, big lesson is how communication again is so imperative. And if you can speak and if you can empower people to do things in their lives and, and move forward, no matter what their situation, that's, that's a beautiful thing.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, wow, that's amazing. Okay. So let's backtrack a little bit. So first of all, how did you discover that your daughter had this rare form of epilepsy?
1: Well, we actually had moved that year from where we used to live into another house to accommodate my father-in-law who had Parkinson's disease. And we wanted to find a house that would be uh, a little bit larger, provide an in-law suite for my mother-in-law and father-in-law and on the first level. So the big thing that happened was we moved. So they kept telling us her sleep disturbances was because it was a big move for her. She was only in third grade, so she was eight years old. I thought initially, well, maybe that's a possibility. But the sleep disturbances were so often. And I spent a lot of time lying in bed with her, trying to get her comfortable, trying to get her to rest, you know. And what I noticed is after less than maybe 45 minutes, She would jolt in bed, or she would sit up, or she would do some odd things that you would normally not do. They said it's sleepwalking, and they took us down the line of all these different things of what it could be. And so, sleep is like one of, I call it like a power of seven. And out of the power of seven, sleep is number one. And if your sleep is disturbed that often through the night, I knew that something was not right in her brain really. And so that took me down the path of finding out what it is. I struggled because doctors thought, again, big traumatic move could be this, but she was so sick. She got every cold, every stomach virus, Everything that came down the line, my daughter was sick with. I was to the doctor more times than I could ever even express. And I knew that, you know, with sleep, how rejuvenating it could be. But yet these doctors kept telling me, oh, you know, now this became a pattern. Now you need to break the pattern and all this other stuff. But I saw something different. And not one doctor would actually see her until she actually had a flu- full-blown seizure during the day. And so it took that amount of s- sleep deprivation before she actually had a full-time, full-blown seizure during the day, because this is mostly happening at night. Until she had that, finally a doctor would see her and take it seriously. So until that moment, It took just me trying to be her advocate, even in school, basically all her skills that she had learned when you're younger started regressing backwards. So I remember she was really sick one day. I had three kids. So she was really sick one day. So anytime I would go to the doctor, it would mean piling three kids in the car. She had two younger brothers I put her in the car. I said, "Let's go. We're gonna go now." She was, I think, eight and a half at the po- at that point, or maybe nine. And I said, "Okay, let's go. Buckle yourself in your car seat, and we'll take off." And so the boys did it. Remember, they're younger than she is by well, two years apiece. So they're buckled in, and I look back in my rearview mirror, and I notice she's not buckled in. So I'm thinking, is she not hearing me or am I not communicating it? So I repeated it again, asking her if she would buckle in. And then I kind of got a little angry. I popped out of my seat and I realized she was trying. She couldn't remember anymore at age nine how to buckle herself into the car, which was just a seatbelt, that's all it was. At that point, I was so frustrated when I went to the doctors with her, I I basically cried. And I said, you know, I see my daughter's skills are regressing so fast. And it was, in fact, that day when I brought her home, that's the day she had a seizure, a full-blown seizure. Right. That's the day that everybody took it seriously, that there was something more than just her, you know, acting out wanting her mom to sleep with her or whatever else, because those were the excuses that they kept telling me. And I believed at the time. So that was a big transition point.
0: But it sounds like from what you're saying that you had a mother's intuition, you knew that something was wrong. And it was really the doctors who were not necessarily believing that fully.
1: Yeah, it was. And it was a struggle too, not only with the doctors, but also with the school system, because Not that they didn't want to help her because they seriously did. I just don't think that they um, understood what I saw. And despite me explaining it, um, anytime you try to get into a developmental doctor, when you have a child, they were giving me like six months to a year. And I basically told them in six months to a year, I don't know where my daughter will be. She needs to be seen now. And you know, I watched her skills just regress so, so fast. And that was the scary part. And so I really did, I had to really learn how to use my voice in an assertive way and to get what I needed for my daughter. So
0: again, the power of speech. Wow. That's yeah. amazing. You're amazing. Seriously. I mean, that could not have been easy.
1: No, it was not easy. It was difficult, and it was difficult on the whole family. Um, But that was just the beginning of the road, because what I found out with ESIS, which is electrostatus epileptic sleep syndrome, which is what she had, um, there are really no medications that work. And all the studies that they've done, they've given people, you know, kids and people, different medications but most of them are just sort of like a Band-Aid. And that's what we kind of went down the road with her as well. And none of these things would work. The interesting thing is I had said to them from the very start, I asked if we could actually change her diet. I said, before we start on the road of medication that we already know doesn't really work, can we put her on a ketogenic diet? Because I had researched the ketogenic diet and high fats for the brain. And they said, well, it's a very difficult diet and we don't recommend it for a child that's growing. Let's try some of these medications first. None of them worked. And we went through quite a few and they even put her on IV steroids to boost the amount of these medications. Still, they did not work and her skills were regressing. So it was a very trying time for the whole family Finally, I ha- you know, luckily the neurologists at children's hospital, they were wonderful, especially Dr. Daniel Licks, because he was willing to listen. And when I said, you know, this is not working, we need to do something else. We always moved forward and did something else. And actually that's when she got accepted into the ketogenic program at children's hospital and went on the ketogenic diet, which really in essence reset her whole biochemistry And after so many sleep studies, we would, you know, I would spend hours upon hours sitting in the hospital with her and she was hooked up basically to an EEG that monitored her sleep all night long, just to see if some of these medications even had just a slight difference in her sleep. And they didn't. And that was the frustrating thing. But when we tried the ketogenic diet and she finally got accepted, now ketogenic diet is pretty well known now, but back then it wasn't. I actually had to write a a whole big letter and I had to advocate again for her to get accepted into the program because they were only accepting so many children into that program at the time. And she was accepted and it was a big game changer. The brain is made of 60% fat. So when you give it what it needs, wow. And that's what she needed.
0: Wow. It's so cool that you knew that.
1: I knew that before we started medication on her. But again, you know, I felt like I'm, because I guess I'm not a medical physician. um, Sometimes I feel like your word kind of gets tossed to the wayside. And who's gonna advocate and research more? I spent 22 years researching the brain and every avenue that there was that might get her to be highly functional. Wow. It was it was what I think any mom would do for, her, for their child. You know, I wanted her to live a life like every other child.
0: Right, no, I see that like, as I'm speaking with you, so our audience can't see you obviously, but um, no, I see the empathy and I see the love that you have for her. It's just like so evident. Thank you. Yeah, it,
1: it, was, it was rough. It was rough for sure, but she was a trooper as well. It took her agreeing to, to do some of these things. It, it took having a, a really big open mind to the fact that, you know, there's more than one way to tackle any situation. And when you look at it that way, and you find your multiple, I guess, avenues, so to speak, then the world opens up for you. And I feel like that is for everybody. Actually, it was one of the reasons why I wrote my book, Opening Opening Our Minds to Our Brain's Potential, is because there is so much potential. No matter where you come from, no matter what you do, there is so much that can be done. But it has to be looked at in a way that doesn't close you off from the different avenues you might be able to select. And I feel like, unfortunately, um, Western and Eastern Medicaid, med, Western and Eastern medicine has kind of been divided for too long. And I feel like As things come together, um, what we will find, and actually what I write about too, is that any medicine you're taking, any treatment you're taking, whether it's Western or Eastern, when you're using both together, becomes amazing. It will make that medicine work better if everything else is working and highly functional in your body as long as that medication does work for the body, that is. so.
0: Right, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I'm a total believer in combining the two. I grew up with a mom who's very, who's into holistic medicine, so. Oh, so you, yeah. you know all too well. Yeah, totally. <laughs> That's
1: great. That's a gift. That's a gift that your mom is involved in that. For sure. You know, I'm sure, I'm sure it's helped you along the way as well.
0: Yes, totally. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. So I just have a question. Do you happen to know, or do the doctors know, like, where this comes from, this form of epilepsy? Um, Not
1: necessarily. Uh, However, when my daughter was born, she actually had a high white blood cell count in her spinal cord. And um, she had sort of, I guess, the precursor to meningitis. And so there's a possibility or a connection to to that. And so they treated her as if she had meningitis because of that high white blood cell count. And so when she was born, they actually kept her in the hospital for two weeks treating her with um, antibiotics. So there is some, I guess, link to that. However, it's not for every single case. And sometimes it could be a genetic factor of somebody having epilepsy in your family. Um, So there was no real clear cut picture. It's not like they said, oh, it was from this. And the startling thing about ESIS is that it actually doesn't hit until the age of four to seven. So, you know, you think about it that way and you think, okay, they learned so much from age zero to four. They're like little sponges, you know, just grasping all this information. And so they start at age four. So they've learned how to, you know, they're potty trained, they've learned how to walk, they've learned how to grass, they learned all these things. And now what happens is, you know, depending upon which age, four, five, six, or seven, the skills start to regress. And so in my daughter's case, because her her um, IQ was higher, it took a while longer for us to actually realize or even know that she had this ESIS. So um, when, when your IQ is a little higher, apparently you're able to sort of find ways to kind of get around things. And she did for a really long time. Uh, she memorized things. She um, found different ways of learning that maybe another child would wouldn't do. My daughter also has attention deficit disorder. She's also dyslexic, and she had ESAs on top of it. Um, yet, she graduated college with the highest honors. Wow! And. I'm so proud of what she's done. She carried both the sciences and the arts, which to me is like, that's when your brain is balanced like that, it just creates happiness, joy, and amazing things in your life. She chose to do that, um, which was not an easy road. They told her it would mean taking a lot more credits and all that, and she wanted to do that. So.
0: Yeah. Oh, good for her. Yeah. So, so I, I'm just wondering, okay. Cause the, the sleep thing is getting me because honestly, like I cannot function without sleep. And I'm just thinking like as a kid, how do you deal with that? Like, how do you go to school? How do you learn? How do you incorporate like what's, what's being taught? You know what I mean? Like, how do you do that? So how, how? like, I'm just like, Yes, it,
1: it was really hard. And actually the, the harder part is, is that, um, you know, when she was taking some of those medications, she would take them at night. So they wouldn't wear off in the morning. And so they would make her brain slower and function even slower. So there was a time that I actually had to do, like, get her ready. Like she was a baby, you know, brushing her hair and brushing her teeth and putting her clothes on her and doing all these things um, because she had no energy. So that, that took me down another whole path of, of discovery of what our bodies are capable of doing and what foods give you, gives you the most energy. Um, and of course the ketogenic diet does that as well, because you're eliminating sugars, you know, you're eliminating high carbs because high carbs, of course, you know, escalate in your um, body and also convert to sugars. And so all those things disrupt the brain and make it unable to sleep. So if you're eating high carbs at night, not a good idea, you know, see if you can switch it off. Maybe eat something that is like nuts or something along those lines, even high sugar things. Bananas are good for you. However, they're high in sugar. I don't really recommend eating them at night. So there's so many different things you can do for yourself. And then, Besides the foods and what we fuel ourselves with, you know, people don't particularly like meditating because they feel like it's a time of doing nothing. And so I would like to challenge people to think about it in a different way and think about it as you're preparing yourself for a night's sleep. You're preparing yourself for the best night's sleep by meditating this 10 minutes right now or 20 minutes, however much time you have in the day. So when we learn to meditate, we learn to shift the brainwave patterns out of this hyper mode of beta. A lot of people say, oh, I lay down and my mind races. Okay, that can happen to anybody. But if you train yourself to understand that you can start slowing that brainwave pattern down, it's like a major tool that you can use for your sleep as soon as you lay down you start to go into that breathing techniques that you've learned while you're meditating you start to connect with what is positive you can do some visual things like imagining being in your favorite place that relaxes the body relaxes all those biorhythms so that now you're setting yourself up for calm peaceful sleep And your most important part of your sleep is usually the beginning part. It's the settling down because it's another time to train your brain. And it is something that I had to teach not only my daughter, because remember, she was not cycling at that time. But I also found that there's other things that you can do like neurofeedback and neurofeedback. Do you know what neurofeedback is? I've heard of it, but could you just explain
0: it for everybody else?
1: Sure, sure. So neurofeedback, I, I would say the easiest way to describe it is like a brain training meditation, okay? Or brain meditation training. This may be a better way of putting it. But it incorporates using games so you get a visual of what happens. Because see, people don't like to meditate so much because they don't have visual evidence that it's doing anything. But if you can actually see with neurofeedback that there's a change, you can see that the brainwave patterns are changing, they're shifting into the alpha, they're shifting into the theta, they're shifting into delta if you're sleeping, then you say, wow, now I have visual evidence. This is actually doing something for me. And so when my daughter started college the first year, And she wanted to go back on the ketogenic diet because she knew that's something that she needed to do so she could be highly functional. She did. And then she also went back to revisiting neurofeedback because I took her when she was in high school. So she could train herself to understand and recognize her own biorhythms. We talked about the biorhythms and understand that when we get to hyper, when our brainwave patterns get too high. We can shift them. And the faster you learn to shift, wow. The more you can access creative abilities in your mind, the more that you can take on, it becomes an ex- whole exciting ride and a new world,
0: yeah. Wow, that's fantastic. So these techniques, like the ketogenic diet and meditation and relaxation, did these help your daughter like sleep better? Absolutely. For the first
1: time after my daughter was done doing the um, ketogenic diet and she was actually finished with neurofeedback, we did again another sleep study on her at Children's Hospital. The very first time it showed she did not have ESIS anymore. She was basically... They didn't say 100% cured. She would probably always have to eat the way she's doing, which, you know, very low sugar, high fats, because that's what keeps the brain highly functional um, and always find meditative ways of doing things. However, it was the first time that really it looked like she had no disruptions in her sleep. And that was amazing. I, I don't know any medication that could do that. And that's why I say... You know, we need to keep our minds open to what is available to us. Because just because there's one obstacle that gets in our way, the water can always flow around that rock. You know, I even wrote about that. Actually, I was writing a, an inspirational little uh, quote, and I actually put it on my Instagram. And I was trying to explain to somebody what it feels like when you're trying to still accomplish things yet you have this big rock in front of you and so I wrote a quote basically as an inspirational thing um, so people could connect with what that feeling is is that you can still move forward even if there's
0: a big rock blocking your way or a big obstacle so to speak so yeah I love that that's yeah. so that, yeah, that's great. So I love the title of your book, opening our minds to our brain's potential. And then the second part, the subtitle, are we, our children's teacher or teachers, I'm sorry, or are they ours? That right. is, that's, that's so, that's, that's like so cool. And so deep. I'm sure that you have a lot to say about that. So I'd love to hear it. <laughs> yeah,
1: I do have a lot to say about that. So Obviously, I learned so much from my children, but I've learned so much, not just from my daughter, but also from my two sons. And so I write about that in my book because, you know, if you're open to learn from people, no matter what their ages are, then life becomes amazing. It becomes not who you are, not where you come from, not what age you are, not what ethnic background you come from. It comes from, wow, each person has a gift and has something to offer. For my daughter, obviously, her resilience and her ability to um, overcome all this stuff. For my other two sons, uh, my son, Anthony, he had concussions from doing gymnastics and he's another story in himself there. And he has overcome so much as well. And he has done some amazing things. Um, what I learned from him, computer skills. He is unbelievable with technology. And if I keep my ears open, I can really learn a lot, you know? and if you keep your ears open to younger people who are learning all this technology and not be fearful of somebody younger, maybe teaching you, you can learn so much. And not only that, you get that connection, which is just making them feel good. Everybody feels good when they can help. It doesn't matter what age they are. And then my middle son, who is, you know, Zachary, who is amazing with finances, I don't know where I'd be without some of his suggestions. So keeping your mind open to what each person has to contribute and what they can offer, that is great. There's also another spin on that. So even though it's about children, if you don't have children, you can connect with the child that's within yourself. And that's a big part. And I actually write about that because I feel like when we um, channel a little bit of our inner child, you know, what makes us excited to get out of bed in the morning, maybe when we were a kid, because usually it's still the same passions we have. I love dancing. I love singing. I love acting. I love all those creative things. Um, they were part of the things that helped me get out of my shell and be able to speak and do some amazing things. So. I think back to the times that I was doing that and actually reinstated that in my life because of how I felt as a child. So there's like that other spin on it is that inner child because we learn so much from that child. And there's like a whole little meditative thing you can do with that if you know, you're know you open to doing that kind of thing. And so that's like the whole transformational um Idea of when we learn from whoever it is we come in contact with, then we really become what's called the evolutionary being, willing to be open to what is available no matter
0: who it comes from. So I love that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I love the two angles of children and then your inner child. Yeah. Because we block things as we get older and you know situations happen to us, we end up like not listening necessarily, sometimes we don't listen to our inner child or we kind of like forget what they want. And so that's like really, that's really cool. Yeah.
1: And there's even a little technique you can do. Cause sometimes we, we feel like we don't want to do this when we're in our waking hours because we feel like, um, it's maybe taking too much of our time or, you know, that's kind of silly, but you can just jot down maybe three things you enjoyed as a kid on a piece of paper put it by your bedside. Think about those things right before you go to sleep. And you'd be surprised sometimes what happens through our dream state
0: just by doing something that simple. Wow. I love that. Okay. Actually, I actually have a question. I'm just thinking like, how did her brothers like, handle everything that was going on? Oh, well, that's interesting that you
1: asked that. Cause I, I do talk about that too in my book. Um, they were amazing kids. I was truly blessed because I, I still recall, and actually I write about it, um, when I got the diagnosis for my daughter, that it was ISIS. And I remember I was on the phone and I got off the phone and I was crying. And my son, Zachary, um, came in to me and he said, what's wrong? You know, he was very concerned about why I was crying. And so I explained to him what was going on. And he said, don't worry, mommy, we'll make her better. And so that's the kind of kid Zachary was. He was very, um, organized. He was older than his years And at that point, I poured my heart out into that kid, and he was so young. I think he was six or seven at the time, maybe seven. And he just listened to me. You know, my husband was working, I had the three kids, she was so sick. And after I was done, he just hugged me. And, you know, it's so, he's always been sort of my rock, even at that young age. Always helping. I can do it myself, almost to a fault. Super organized kid, you know. Of course, he's my finest guy. Could you imagine that? (laughs) (laughs) And then, and then my youngest, just kind of like me, super compassionate. And my daughter couldn't read. So we uh, joined the, she couldn't read well she could read but we joined the new jersey library for the blind and handicapped so she could listen to her books but my son was 4 years old and he was teaching himself to read really fast and so i caught him one night and i remember whisking the blankets back cuz i was like thinking how important sleep was and i was a little angry that he wasn't sleeping and i he had all these books he was sleeping with. And I looked at him, I said, Anthony, and looked up with his blue eyes to me. And I said, what are you doing? He had his little flashlight. He said, I'm going to read all these books. Mm -hmm. And I was like, you're going to read all these books? And he said, yes. He said, I'm going to read all these books so I can read for Nicolette so she doesn't have to. And that's just how he was. He would always so empathetic and always so compassionate with her. And when she couldn't sleep, he would crawl in bed with her and just, so they were my rocks, the two of them, you know, between one being so compassionate, the other one being so supportive and sort of strong. And um, yeah, they were, I learned a lot just watching them help me.
0: They both sound like real empaths.
1: So I've, I've been blessed.
0: Yeah. Triple blessed. (laughs) Sounds like it for sure. So do you have any advice for parents who are going through like a similar situation? Maybe they don't know what's going on medically with their child or if they, if their child gets diagnosed with ESIS, like, is there something that you would recommend they do or?
1: Yes. Um, A lot of things. The first thing is always listen to your intuition. A mother's intuition is unbelievable. And if you listen to what your inner voice is telling you, and you persevere with what your thoughts are, and then also still be open to what you might find along the way, that will be your biggest advocate no matter what your child has, whether it's ESIS or diabetes or whatever else is out there. And remember that there's so much out there today and people are more open today than they were way back when um, to all these different avenues that you can suggest. And if for some reason your doctor is not your best advocate, remember that you have a choice to either make another decision on a new doctor or find somebody that aligns with some of your thought processes. I was very lucky. I found, you know, Dr. Daniel Licht um, who was willing to do whatever it takes and it wasn't just medicine. It wasn't just pharmaceuticals. It was whatever it would be. And when I, you know, mentioned something about neurofeedback, he said, he was honest. I don't know anything about it. Sounds like you know more. He said, but I will be your advocate. I said, do you have any suggestions for anybody I might be able to go see? No, I had to find my own way around that. However, they were 100% behind. And of course, after the results showed that between the ketogenic diet and the neurofeedback, we have phenomenal results. So visual evidence, again, is amazing. And so that's what I got from that. So I would recommend following your heart. You know, the heart and the brain cannot be separated. And when we listen to both, we are like one step further than, than
0: you could ever imagine you could be. So for sure. Yeah. So this is the question that I ask everyone at the end. Um, What is something that you hope the next generation of women won't have to struggle with? Wow. That's a big
1: one. I hope that they don't have to struggle with understanding that their words have um, worth and no matter where you come from, no matter, you know, like my story with being so shy, find a way that you can communicate whatever is in your heart. Because once you learn to communicate, even though it's coming from our brains, obviously, we have to think about it, all that stuff. Um, but if you find a way to communicate and utilize both your heart and your mind, then life and the world becomes an amazing place. And what I hope that they don't have to struggle with is um, allowing themselves to do that, you know, because that was my my biggest struggle. And I hope they have enough self-worth to um, to know that they're worthy of everything good
0: coming to them. So I love that. Thank you. And and where can people find you if they want to learn more about you?
1: Okay, so I can be found on my website, which is angelasetti.com. I can also be found, you know, on my my email, which is uh, very simple. Again, angelasetti at awell.com. And then I can be found on, everything's going to be Angela Setti, just about. (laughs) So that's simple. (laughs) I can be found on my Instagram, Angela Setti. I can be found on my Facebook, Angela Setti. And I can also be found on my LinkedIn, uh, which is Angela Setti and even Twitter. But Twitter is actually Angela Setti one. So (laughs) that would be the big difference there. And then I have a second Instagram which I just started, which is called Visionary Movement underscore S J. And I'm in the process of um, opening up a brick and mortar building called Visionary Movement, and that is going to be my wellness, movement, and dance center, which I am going to be running with my daughter. So there will be two of us there, along with others, and I'll be teaching all forms of movement because I am a movement specialist. I teach uh, different forms of yoga. I teach Pilates, multiple forms. I teach dance. And I believe that movement is like primary to keep our bodies and minds healthy. So, and where else? I think that's about it for right now.
0: (laughs) Okay, great. Well, it's such a pleasure having you, Angela. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story and your daughter's story. Oh, it was my pleasure. I love when I can share things and I hope that this helps whoever listens to it because that would be the most meaningful for me.